0: Hi, and welcome to the West Visay Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Continuing our topic of discussion today, that we've been going on a, a whole series of lessons titled, You're Not Supposed to Talk About That. And what we've been determining is, no, we need to be talking about these subjects. And although these subjects are hot button topics, you might say might not always be the most politically correct. I don't like using that terminology; it seems kind of combative. But these are subjects that, in some circles, might get you into trouble. They're subjects that sometimes we avoid because of maybe a particular controversy, or even like last week we talked about you know the topic of divorce. That sometimes we approach it maybe in the wrong way too. And what we're trying to do with all of these topics is determine what does God's word say. We talked about premarital sex. We talked about homosexuality, we've talked about marriage, we've talked about divorce, and this week we are going to talk about the subject of abortion, which is very much a serious issue. It's a, it's a, a heart-wrenching issue as well, but it's one that that isn't talked about maybe enough, or when it is talked about, it's approached in uh, the wrong way. But what I want us to see with every single one of these lessons, and I'm really trying to make this the basis of when I deal with most people when they ask me, a a question about what does the bible say about this or is this right is this wrong i want people to understand that in all things our heavenly father loves us and he knows what's best for us oftentimes we present god in a way that he's looking for a reason to send us to hell or that that god is 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 unkind or that he's unloving and he just wants to make a whole bunch of difficult rules because he wants to see if we're going to fall short that's not the god i read about in scripture Now, sometimes people present God in the wrong way, but the God I see in scripture is crazy about us. He loves us. He created us and wants to spend eternity with us. Now, we do certain things that that cause separation between us and God, and the whole Bible's written to, to get rid of that separation, to bring us back to him so that he can be with us. We are his children. He is our father. He loves us. And because he made us and because he loves us, he knows what's best for us. We don't always know what's best for us. We make choices that take us down a, a wrong road. You think about it, Well, as a parent to a child, I'll give my kids rules and guidelines and things that they might not like. You know, when they're younger especially, they have some really set bedtimes. And they don't like that. They're like, well, why do we have this bedtime? That's not fair. Owen and Claire get to stay up later. Why do we have to go to bed? You know, those kinds of things. Well, I also understand as a parent that when they stay up really late, they don't get a good night's rest. They don't get to do well at school in the morning. You know, there's, there's rules there that I give because I love them and I know what's best for them. You know, you can't go run around outside, you know, when it's uh, you know, negative whatever degrees without a jacket on because I'm worried you're going to get sick. You know, those kinds of things. As a father, I know what's best for my children. Our Heavenly Father loves us and knows what's best for us. And you see this with all of his commands. Now, sometimes we might not understand the why behind God's commands. But if we at least understand this, we can know that the commands are coming from a good place. But you see this a lot with the Ten Commandments, even back in the Old Testament. God gave commands there that if humans were to come up with commands, they might not come up with these. But God did because he loves us and knows what's best for us. So you think about a command like, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, or you shall not lie, basically, is the idea there. Humans left alone without a divine moral standard probably would deceive and probably would lie a lot. but we but God knows what's best for us. God knows what's best for societies, God knows what's best for communities for families for for relationships. so he gives a command don't lie. the command of of, of adultery, you know being a, a sin there. well the idea because God knows that that, that tears apart families that that ruins relationships it hurts homes, Without that standard there, maybe we'd go down a path somewhere else. God loves us and knows what's best for us. And you see this with the command I want us to look at today. The command of you shall not murder. Now, most people would say whether you believe in God or not, that's a good command. Hopefully, we would all be on the same page with that, but maybe we aren't in the application of it. But the command you shall not murder comes from a loving God who knows what's best for us. A loving God who's crazy about his creation, wants to spend eternity with his creation, doesn't want us to harm it, to kill it, you know, in in, in any way. So you shall not murder is a command that comes from a good place too. But when you start to think about it, I'm approaching this topic of abortion this morning kind of in a similar way we did a couple years ago when we looked at this because I think we got to set the stage with this. But God gave this command way back in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20. You shall not murder. The reason he gave that command starts to make sense even more when you see what happens next in the story of Scripture. God gave that command to the Hebrews. The Hebrews are supposed to go into Canaan. They're supposed to conquer that land and and live there and dwell there and not be influenced by the religious practices of the Canaanites. And one of the teachings throughout Scripture, that is, or one of the actions throughout Scripture that is condemned, is idol worship. Now, on the surface, we might be thinking, well well, God must just be so arrogant that He only wants us to worship Him. Or God must be prideful, or God must have this, this need for us to worship Him and no one else, and that's why He's doing it. But when you start to research idol worship, the command to not worship idols begins to make more sense. Now, of course, God is the only one that should be down, bound, bowed down before. We know that universally as Christians. However, there's also a practical side to this, too: Idol worship usually consisted of some very evil practices in the New Testament. You know, you think about the the goddess of the Ephesians, Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. One of the ways that they would worship that goddess is through ritualistic temple prostitution. God tells don't worship idols because he knows what idol worship leads to. It leads to sexual depravity and promiscuity and all this bad stuff. So he says don't worship idols, don't go down that path because it also leads you here. There's a why behind that command. To the Israelites, telling them not to worship idols and to not commit murder makes a lot of sense when they're going into the land of Canaan. Because the idols that the Canaanites worshipped were often idols that involved violence and murder. For example, we talked about this before when we covered this subject a few years ago. The Canaanites worshipped the idol god, Molech. Molech, the way that you would sacrifice to Molech was he had various compartments there in his torso or in the idol, and you put different sacrifices in those compartments, some of those sacrifices, if you can't see it in this um, artist's rendition here, involved humans. Not just humans, though, but babies. They did child sacrifice to God Molech. God knew that. That angered God. It. it upset God. And his people were going into that land, and God wants to make sure they know, don't go down that path couple historic historians write, Plutarch wrote this concerning the god Molech. He said, No, but with full knowledge and understanding, they themselves offered up their own children. And those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were so many lambs or young birds. Meanwhile, the mother stood by without a tear or a moan. That's awful, right? He says the whole area before the statue was filled with the loud noise of flutes and drums and took the cries and wailings so that they should not reach the ears of the people. That's a historically accurate description of the worship of the god Molech. It involved child sacrifice. Another Jewish historian, Rashi, says, That is Molech, which was made of copper, and they would heat it up from underneath it with its hands spread out and heated. And they would place the child on his hands, and he would be burnt and moan. And so the priest would beat the drums so that the father should not hear his son's voice and take pity. You go on, Rabbi Simeon wrote, he says, It was a hollow statue which contained seven apartments in which one there was offered to the God flower. Turtle doves were sacrificed in the second, sheep in the, in the third, rams in the fourth, cakes in the fifth, bulls in the sixth. As of the seventh cell, it was opened when they were going to sacrifice children. The Canaanites did not see the value in human life. The problem, not just with that, is the fact that they were violating a principle of God that God wants all people for all time to keep, and that is don't murder. But they were murderers. They would murder, in fact, even their own children. So God, telling the Israelites as they're going into this society there, he reminds him over and over again, you be different. In Leviticus 11, verse 45, and this phrase is repeated throughout the book of Leviticus, It's, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. We as Christians don't act like the Canaanites. We are supposed to be different. God's people, his children should stand in in glaring contrast to those who would even think of shedding innocent blood. We are supposed to be holy because God is holy. What's sad is that God's people aren't always holy. In fact, in Jeremiah, written as a prophecy to God's people, the Israelites, notice what it says in verse 31, and they have built in the high places of Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, which, by the way, Topeth is another word for drum, because the drums that were used during child sacrifice to drowned out the cries of children, That word associated also with the Valley of Hinnom, if you do some word study with this, began to be associated later with a term that was used for hell. Because the Valley of Hinnom was a place where you discarded, you know, like like bodies and garbage and things, and and it would burn there. Then you have the places of Topeth where they would offer these sacrifices. It says, to burn their sons and their daughters, in which did not command, nor did it come into my mind. God says, I never, ever would have wanted human sacrifice, specifically child sacrifice, to ever occur. I didn't command it. It did not come to my mind. And yet here you have people falling into that same practice. See, some of God's people didn't even see the value of human life. What about us today? Is there still this problem of sacrificing our young to an idol God? Is there still this issue of the shedding of innocent blood? Is there still this issue of murder in the name of something good? Yeah, there is. It's not always called child sacrifice. It's not called bowing before Molech, but it uses terms like abortion or um, terminate a pregnancy or a right to choose. Those are the terms that are used today, but we're talking about similarity, the the same kind of practice. So although we might not play drums to drown out the cries of children who are being sacrificed, we're playing drums in different ways. See, we we use different language to hide the pain. The reason they, they played the drums is because they didn't want to actually come to grips with what they were doing. They couldn't bear hearing the cries of the children. So they they drowned them out with with, with music. Now, we might not drown out cries with music in that way, but we do different things to lessen the impact of what is actually taking place. We don't call things killing a baby. We use things like a right to choose. We don't call a a, a doctor's office where this is happening an abortion clinic, but we call it, you know, a woman's health care center or something along those lines. We do something to try to soften the blow so that we don't have to come to grips with what is actually happening around us. What drums are we playing to drown out the cries of the children that are being sacrificed? God made it very clear. He said, you shall not murder. And the sin of murder is mentioned in numerous verses in the Old and New Testament. I tried to come up with an exhaustive list, and you really can't because it's alluded to in so many different places. And what I want us to see today, just for the few minutes that we have left, abortion falls into the category of murder. So although the Bible might not specifically mention the modern practice uh, of abortion or things like that, it falls into the category of murder, and it happens a lot. According to the CDC, and I found this on their website as of 2018, so up-to-date statistics, okay? It says 619,591 legal-induced abortions were reported to the CDC from 49 reporting areas among 48 reporting areas with data each year during 2009 and 2018 in 2018 a total of 614 820 abortions were reported the abortion rate was 11.3 abortions per 1000 women aged 15 to 44 years and the abortion ratio was 189 abortions per 1000 live births that's a lot of drums that need to be played to cry to get rid of a lot of those cries right that's a lot of death that is happening I will say the rate is going down, at least in our country, which is good, but it's still not good enough. One child's life being taken away is too much, 619,000, and yet we act like it's all good. Everything's okay. There's not a big problem out there. God values all life, both born and unborn. And the taking of that life is murder. In Jeremiah 1, in the beginning there, when he comes to the prophet, it says, then the word of the Lord came unto me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and ordained you as a prophet to the nations. Even before Jeremiah was born, God knew him. So before he was delivered, God knew him, and God ordained him and set him apart. You know, with, with all of our children, when we find out that, that, that Zinni was, was expecting, you know, that, we're, that when she was pregnant, we, we had a relationship already with that child. I put my hand on her stomach and, you know, and feel the baby kick, excited anticipation waiting for that child to be born. You know, God knew Jeremiah when he was in the womb, and any parent will tell you they knew their child while they were still in the womb? In Psalm 139, verse 13, it says, for you have formed my inward parts. You have covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you. And it goes on to say, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. That's an ancient way of describing what is taking place in the development of a baby inside his mother's womb. Okay. They're not going to use terms like like fetus and things like that, because they didn't have those words, but it's the same kind of terminology. Uh, he says that you form me at my inward parts, you cover me in my mother's womb, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, with each one of our kids, we were able to have ultrasounds, right? And I think the first one's like at eight weeks, and, and the next one's usually like, I don't know, like 12 to 14 weeks along those lines, and, and I remember the anticipation of seeing, like, okay, because you're afraid as a parent, right? What if something's wrong? What if something's not okay? And and then, you know, rubbing the the wand on Zinni there, and then then all of a sudden you can see on the screen the child there. Little feet, little hands. And they'll be describing, you know, right now your baby's only that big, you know, and they'll talk about it. But but there it is, right? There it is and fearfully and wonderfully made there in the womb. And yet, the child that we'd see at eight weeks on the ultrasound, the child that maybe we would see at 12 weeks on the ultrasound where we find out if it's a boy or if it's a girl, legally in this state, we could have made the choice right then to say, we don't want this child. Take this child's life. The child that we're already talking, it looks like it has your feet. You know, we say things like that. That one that's fearfully and wonderfully made, it's legal to take its life. In Luke chapter one, in verse 41 Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist and she comes into the presence of Mary who's pregnant with Jesus. And it says, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy the first one to recognize Jesus was an unborn child. Think about that. The first one to recognize Jesus coming in the flesh was not even born yet. Neither was Jesus. But they knew. They knew. And obviously God's involved in all this, I know. But a, an unborn child was the first one to recognize Jesus. And also the term for Elizabeth's preborn baby in this verse in the Greek language is the same word that's used later to talk about Jesus when he is laying in the manger, you know, after he's born. God doesn't differentiate. They didn't differentiate between the baby in the womb or the baby outside the womb. It was still a child. And, and here you have John the Baptist leaping for joy at the recognition of Jesus when he's in the womb. God values all life, both born and and unborn so the command of you shall not murder applies to whether the person is born or not you shall not murder and the bible makes it very clear how god views murder in the end of the bible revelation 21 verse 8 which by the way the bible begins a lot with the condemnation of murder with cain slaying abel and ends with a condemnation of murder in revelation 21 verse 8 it says but as for the cowardly The faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Murder is a sin. Abortion is a sin. It is wrong, and it takes the life of someone who is innocent, someone who's done nothing wrong, Someone who's made and Think about all the verses in Scripture that elevate children. How many times did Jesus use a child to illustrate what we should be like? And yet, just like the Canaanites in sacrificing to Molech, we as a society sacrifice our children to idol gods today. Now, it might be the idol god of, of choice or, or of some kind of illusion of freedom or the idol god of sex. You know, We, we want to not have responsibility, so we take the life. Someone else. It is a selfish sin. Murder is wrong. Now, there's a lot of information out there, and I'm not going to share it this morning about the brutality of abortion. I recommend you look it up, and it will ruin your afternoon, but I recommend you do it. Look up what happens in abortion. Look up the stories about abortion. Look Look what it does to the child, and look what it does to the mother, too. You know, you can talk about rates of depression. And those that have had abortions, you can talk about suicide rates. You can talk about all of that because it's there. I mean, it's, anybody, whether you're for abortion or not, will show you why it's not a good thing for the mother even too. It, it makes sense. But God loves us and knows what's best for us. And for us to think we have a better plan by taking the life of someone is not godly at all. You be holy for I am holy, God told the Israelite, Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said. That includes the unborn. Murder is a sin. But I also want to leave this here with you this morning before we close, because I know, and I guarantee it that even in this room, there's probably those that have been around abortion or maybe even had abortions themselves or things like that. It's wrong. It's sinful. But it can also be forgiven. Just because you engaged in this behavior Just because you committed this sin does not mean that that there is no hope for you. There's murderers who are forgiven in Scripture. I've talked to people before that are faithful Christians today that have been involved in violent lifestyles before coming to Christ, and there's a chance that they have taken the life of someone else. They live with that, yes. They live with the guilt of that. They live with the fear of that, and and, and that's the reality of it. And I'm not saying that, that you coming to Jesus is going to make you feel better about a choice you made in the past. It doesn't. There's sins that I did in my past that I still feel bad about. I know that God has forgiven me, absolutely, but I, I, I still, it haunts me. But we can be forgiven, you can be forgiven even of the sin of murder. So if you're listening today, and if you're online and you're listening to this, and you're thinking, oh no, I've done this. I've participated. I supported this behavior. I celebrated it as, as, as a woman's right to choose. You can still be forgiven if you come to Jesus, repent of your sins, Place your faith in him. If you're not a Christian, you can be baptized in him and have your sins washed away. You'll know, be born again. If you're strayed away from him, you can come back to him and be made whole again. What's interesting, you know, I was reading through the book of Matthew for our class on Wednesday night and some other reading that I was doing was talking a lot about um, the triumphant entry of Jesus and how probably some of the same people who were yelling Hosanna to Jesus were probably the same people who yelled crucify him when he was killed, were probably maybe even some of the same people that said to Peter in Acts chapter 2, what shall we do? Murderers can be forgiven too. Those that commit abortion can be forgiven if they come to Jesus. So I do want to leave you with a message of hope this morning. And although we've dealt with some difficult subjects these last few weeks, if there's one point that I hope you got from all of these lessons is that your heavenly father loves you and knows what's best for you. He loves us, knows what's best for us, and although what he wants us to do might go against what we would normally do, trust him. His ways are best, and they come from a good place. He's not a a, a cruel, prideful God up there looking for a reason to punish you. He's looking for a reason to save you. He's looking for a way to give you a better existence. He's looking for a way to give you a better eternity with him if we come to him and trust in him. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless.